Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the show, Kevin Stofman. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Great to have you here. Well, Kevin, you've been at this game a little while. And for those who don't know you, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure thing. 17 years in commercial real estate across a variety of property types and, and asset life cycle stages, mostly big companies. I'll call it a tour of duty at Morgan Stanley in the real estate transactions group, then got an MBA. And then I spent 10 years in management consulting. And we were advising mostly investors, owner operators, and developers of commercial real estate, typically in office multifamily and industrial. And then two years ago, I joined a, a data analytics company called Navigator. I'm now their COO. And we analyze a ton of investment, financial, operational, and market and demographic data from our clients, some of who are, would be recognizable names, Blackstone, Starwood Capital, et cetera. Fabulous. Well, we're going to have a great conversation. Obviously, a lot's changed in the marketplace over the last 18 months, and some of it's real, some of it's a mirage, some of it is folklore and, uh, <laughs> and everything in between. It's an interesting time. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has accelerated some trends that were already underway. It has created some false trends that were really just an aberration. And I know you've got some opinions on specific asset classes to focus on these days. What are you seeing in the marketplace? Well, there's definitely no shortage of capital. I'll start there. COVID definitely did not scare away money and investment. So you definitely have more money chasing less deals. And so, of course, cap rates continue to compress. We haven't seen a bunch of real interest rate movement. Inflation is a bugaboo people are talking about. There's a lot of money being printed. So that, that is something to watch for. But for the most part, finding the right deals is super important right now. And I've been banging the drum for the last few months on why student housing is being overlooked. I know there are riskier markets than others based on campus policies, but I'm always a believer in any asset class that has its tenant base turning over every year with credit backed by a tenant's parents who have better financial resources in close proximity to a set of buildings, aka university campuses, that can't really ever pick up and move. So proximity, turnover, lease trade out, and good credit backing, I think all support a longer term thesis in student housing. My perspective on this, and I've been a player in student housing since about 2012, 2013, is that it, as always, like in any segment, it comes down to obeying the laws of supply and demand. On the demand side, this is the question that has been, I think, foremost on people's mind. The pandemic created an aberration in demand, but even in advance of that, a lot of schools had been transitioning an increasing percentage of their course load to the online format. If I think about universities like University, UT Arlington is a great example. That campus has grown tremendously, and you're probably familiar with it because it's in your backyard. I am. Right? So 52,000 students, 11,000 units of student housing, but 52% pre-pandemic, 52% of the courses had already moved to the online format. It started as a commuter college, and I'm wondering if, in fact, it's not already overbuilt. And is that a bellwether for what might be happening in other universities around the nation? I think 
any college that relied a bunch on high percentages of commuters, UT Arlington being one of them, I think that is an extremely accurate prediction. And that's not just for, for campuses or housing, right? That's for office space. That's for industrial logistics warehouses that have become more and more automated over time. The idea that someone should be commuting an hour or more each way every day is in most cases going to be a thing of the past. But for any institutions that are seen as, quote, tier one, universities that still have acceptance rates below 20%, they're not going anywhere. Housing will remain in high demand. Demand will always outstrip supply. Not always, but at the current moment, outstrip supply. So if you can be near you know, what I would call top 100 universities by brand and cachet in major cities, you definitely want to be putting more money in. There are some ex exceptions, right? There's a lot of housing that has now been reclassed as affordable and has certain rent control provisions on it. With that, there's pros and government incentives to continue to develop that stock. The cons are at the political whims of local city councils. And obviously we've seen it has not been trending well, right? The idea of policies that are made for landlords and owners, that that's more rare and you have a lot more tenant protections coming in. So you need to I think be watching the legislation at the local level as you get into, especially multifamily investment. Well, and certainly student housing exists as an asset class in the marketplace, but from a legal standpoint, it doesn't exist. It's no different than any other form of housing. The landlord-tenant rules apply to that class of housing the same as anything else. So from a legal standpoint, it's no different. And like you said, if there is an increasing amount of affordable housing coming into the marketplace, that is potentially competition for what might be the pure play student housing. Absolutely. And there, there are a few good data sources for this. RealPage has their own set of data, but the data I've been most impressed with is by Yardi. They have a tool called Yardi Matrix. It's very much, to me, it's the most accurate data because it's, it's coming directly from the owners. They're anonymizing the information, then aggregating and reselling. So if you're a big player in the multifamily development space, and you're choosing a data source to dip your toe into market data, I, I think the RD matrix is a good one. I agree with that. In fact, I think it was apartmentlist.com within the last year modified their data metrics where previously they were relying on asking rents as opposed to the actual hard rents. They realized that that was in fact a source of inaccuracy and they changed their methodology. A lot of our clients actually, as they bring the data in, they actually want to see both. They want to know how close the actual secured rents are to the original asking. So how off base are they in particular markets or MSAs? I haven't done enough deep analysis in one MSA to tell you that it's more accurate than another, but I would say the larger scale owners and operators are getting smarter as they evaluate those variances. When you look at student housing, I see a lot of the new product trying to play the amenities arms race like we've seen often in the game of multifamily. And I, I kind of scratch my head and say, well, wait a minute. Included in your tuition, you've got a big fancy gym and you've got, you know, really a first class facility at your disposal. Why do you need a gym and a pool in your student housing complex? It doesn't make any sense. Why would someone pay extra for that? It's interesting, right? I used to be thinking, well, that stuff's unnecessary. You don't need it. But in certain markets, COVID has driven people back to a more remote learning approach. So they want those amenities within their complexes. My advice to your podcast listeners and, and anyone who's developing or investing in space is to look at that on a property by property basis. 
you definitely don't want to be investing in a community that has fancy amenities, thinking it's going to get 10 to 15% extra market rate rents compared to something that's close by, but it will be a deal maker when rents are even. That makes sense. Now, the other consideration when it comes to student housing, of course, is we're seeing an awful lot of, let's say, almost backlash in the marketplace around what I'll call the university industrial complex, where if you look at what's enabled the kind of tuitions that are happening in the marketplace is really a very rich availability of student debt. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, why do I need to go spend 115, 120 grand in debt? Is it really going to get me a better job when I graduate? And for some, yes. You know, if you're getting a degree in medicine or dentistry or something like that, that absolutely requires a bricks and mortar presence and, and, and all of that, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not saying this to sound anti-education in any way, because I'm, I'm not. I'm highly pro-education. I have degrees myself, and, and I'm glad that I do. Question is, at what point did the economics create a tipping point? At what point do people start to back away? And even just demographics, declining birth rates, how is that going to play into demand for student housing? I think you will continue to see a flight to quality. The data wasn't very transparent. It was opaque in a black box at most of these universities on what people were making, depending on what major they chose and how much student debt they took on. And in the last couple of years, you've seen a lot more buckets of data that show the tuition is not all that different university per university. If you're at the same place for a philosophy degree versus a business degree or an engineering degree, the tuition is within range of each other. And then the salaries, even in year one, graduate are, are pretty diametrically diverse. So people are making a lot more decisions, not on whether to attend a particular university, but which majors they're now choosing when they arrive. And that becomes interesting because a lot of universities have, have taken on debt themselves and built up student housing communities on campus that they then own. So you have this weird connection of now they have debt exposure and coverage ratios and loan to value information you want to be evaluated. And if you're going to go deep in a particular MSA, you may want to look at is a particular student housing development that I can invest in attached to a particular named school on a campus, right? Is this dorm focused or near the school of engineering versus is it at the school of art history? Those are going to be different tenant bases, different levels of return, uh, different levels of consistency. It, it, the problem is you don't get that level of granularity in every investment you look at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we started developing student housing in and around Temple University in Philadelphia. And not far from the university is a neighborhood that it's the old, you know, turn of the century townhouses. One time it was very affluent area, then became, you know, quite frankly, became the hood and then has gone through a bit of a resurgent, and a lot of that got converted to student housing. So those old Philadelphia townhouses became four- and five-bedroom student housing. But there was still a shortage. Numbers were still pretty good. The university then built their own residence building with 1,200 beds and saturated the market. So then a lot of that student housing wasn't getting filled. Rents were dropping. Some of it got converted to Section 8. It completely changed the dynamics of the market. So your point about what's happening with the campuses themselves. How do you get that data? How do you get that forward-looking view? Do you talk to the student housing office at the universities to get a, a sense for what they're planning? How do you get clarity? 
Yeah, they're so not forthcoming with numbers, but you can look at enrollment rates. That's usually your best data point. There's what the heads of universities that are trying to raise money advertise, and then there, there's the actual enrollment rate rules that, that are typically publicly available, especially if they're state universities, which is typically where the, the biggest enrollment growth is. University of Texas, University of Florida, University of Arizona, right? All, a lot of these, especially in uh, warmer weather climates. And you can track enrollment trends, not only at the university level, but by college, by schools. You can see, is enrollment growing at the engineering school versus the law school, et cetera. The only other point I would make, single family residential, this, this kind of idea of turning a townhouse into four and five bedroom split level units is becoming more and more in vogue. And institutional capital is going after it in a big way. You've seen Blackstone's launched an SFR fund, Starwood Capital's gone to SFR. A bunch of pensions are, are backing money into there. That's becoming very popular and, and corporatized. That definitely affects the purchase rates and costs for people that are trying to get into this space. So if you're going to invest in the SFR market individually, I would say choose carefully. But if you're looking at institutional players, it's a good space to look. Fascinating. Well, Kevin, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, Kevin Stoffman. Find me. Our website, navigatorcre.com, talks a lot about the types of data we ingest, analyze, and visualize for our clients. And we're happy to help in any way we can. Fantastic. I love the perspective. Uh, for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Kevin at Kevin Stoffman, S H T O F M A N on LinkedIn and his company, NavigatorCRE.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.